Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We are super lucky today to have Bucky from Finer Perkins talking about the four trends driving enterprise software forward. Cool. Thanks, Anne. And thanks, Bucky, for doing this. We really appreciate it. I've gotten to know Bucky uh, recently in the past couple of years. We looked at a bunch of companies together. He's a partner at Kleiner Perkins, and he's backed a number of what I would consider iconic companies. I know they're iconic because when I meet founders, they keep referencing their company. Well, I'm sort of like Netlify, except this. Those companies include Netlify, Labelbox, Prisma out of Germany, Open Raven, and a bunch of others. So really an investor that's been at the forefront of what we can think of as the new stack of enterprise infrastructure, whether it's Netlify that basically defined Jamstack, Labelbox, which is one of the iconic companies in, in labeling, Prisma, which is one of the leaders of the GraphQL revolution, Open Raven, Trace Data and Privacy and, and Security. Before becoming a partner at Kleiner Perkins, which is, again, one of the leading VC funds in the Valley, he worked at two other VC funds, Tanoa and Battery. Before that, was in the corp dev arm of Cisco, where he looked at a lot of infrastructure companies, so brings that perspective as well. Bucky, thank you so much for joining us. Floor is yours. Thank you, Gil. Pleasure to be here with you all. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to meeting as many of you as I can. And so what I'm going to talk to you about are these four trends that I've been thinking a lot about in the way they are really driving the future of enterprise software forward as I see it. And more importantly, I think the question we should all be asking as both investors and entrepreneurs is really just how to align your startup with them and where it actually makes sense to do so and where it doesn't. So that's going to be kind of the meat of the discussion is that latter piece. And I think the four trends that we're going to talk about here should probably be fairly obvious. But my hope is, is that the things that we kind of talk about that I think of as unique ways to kind of ride those trends are less obvious. And so just a quick background on me. Gil shared a little bit of background on my career experience. But the thing I'd say is like my focus as an investor and partner to entrepreneurs is really best summarized as working with folks who are building technical products for technical end users. And what I mean by that, and I'll talk about it in a second, is I am interested in people who are thinking about solving the hardest problems that application developers, data scientists, machine learning engineers, DevOps engineers, and so on. People that are either involved in sort of the data or the software delivery value chain. I'm interested in their problems. And the reason I'm interested in their problems is perhaps obvious to some of you, but I'll say it anyways, which is that as I think about just the primal needs of every business on earth today, I think of them in two parts. The first part is everyone is trying to digitize the entirety of their internal inward facing as well as external facing uh, interactions with either their customers or their colleagues. And to do that, you of course have to either procure or develop software. And again, even the software that's being procured today, and I'll, again, I'll talk about this too in a bit. To me, I think about it a lot. It's just this network of connected APIs. We're taking these building blocks and we are using them to speed up people's time to market, to deliver on these software uh, development outcomes. And what it leaves, and, and this is an interesting place to touch on Netlify, and I'll do so again in a bit, is really the front end, as I think about it, is the last bastion of originality in the software development process for the lion's share of applications that are being built today. But really what this work has taught me actually is that the tendencies and preferences of this population actually are serving as leading indicators for emerging trends in the broader software landscape. 
And more importantly, I think they inform these key enablers of success for software startups in the future. And I think about that a lot as I explore new market opportunities and invest in companies. Like I said, I think the four trends are going to be fairly obvious, but I hope that what the things I propose for you to consider doing to align with them are not. And so let's jump into the first one. This first one is simple, which is technical end users have more influence than ever before. So again, just to kind of rehash, when I talk about a technical end user, I'm talking about security engineers, data scientists, SRE, DevOps engineers, application developers. And again, as I said, the software that's being built inside of most companies is really just, as I think about it, like this sort of connected set of Lego blocks, APIs, primitives that are things like telephony, messaging, payments, and so on. And I think we're really just scratching the surface as to what the kind of universe of said Lego blocks will ultimately be. And why that's interesting to me is because I think it really reshapes the way you think about like one, what these software applications look like in terms of what, um, what is actually placed upon the end customer to actually worry about as they think about developing it and maintaining it. But it also presents some really interesting both opportunities and technical challenges that I think I actually think a lot about even outside of this kind of more technical software for technical and user domain. And so I think the question is really just what you should actually do about this reality if you agree with it. So the first is, I think any of you that are building a new software company should expose a robust API as early as possible. And I think I've covered this point home pretty exhaustively already. But again, I think if you can figure out ways to extend your product, your application to other processes, to other application development projects and so on, you, you realize a lot of stickiness. You're going to get more consumption. You're probably going to actually have more engagement. Then I hope it will amount to uh, greater ACVs as well because the value proposition of your software is simply going to be broader and, and higher impact. And so an example of a company here that I really admire is HubSpot. So the thing HubSpot did that was really interesting at the time, and you could probably say the same thing about Shopify today, but I think HubSpot was more of a pioneer in this respect, is they really leaned into enabling agencies and SMB developers to actually build things on top of HubSpot. And as a result, HubSpot became kind of this central nervous system for these small media businesses that were thinking about marketing to their customers. And more importantly, I think it's the success of this is evidenced by the fact that they went from being very much a dumb marketing automation system to a full featured CRM over time. And the sky's kind of been the limit for them in terms of the platform potential that's presented. The other thing I'd say about this API notion is that, and again, this might be belabored for some of you, but like treat your docs as if they're part of the product. It's just as important as your marketing website, if not more important. And I can't tell you how many companies I work with, I hear from them that their customers are giving them feedback that like the investment that they put into their docs is just so appreciated. And I could go on for days about sort of the nuances of this, but at a high level, treat your docs as if they are part of the product, if that's not something you're doing already. The second thing I'd say is I'd really encourage you all to experiment with self-serve and bottoms up as early as possible. And that's obviously targeted at folks that are kind of building a company that who aspires to sell to really large businesses. And the point that I want to make here is that I actually think it's much more viable to pursue this sort of self-serve bottoms up, almost like viral type of go-to-market adoption strategy with larger companies than ever before. And the reason for that is simple, which is that as we have more and more software products being sold into all of these really big companies, the executives, the C-level folks, they just don't have time to feel these overtures from new vendors. And so what do they do? They look to their ICs for signal. And so if you think about how to actually generate that signal from an IC and how to capture that, Again, you have to have robust documentation for your product. You have to really be thoughtful about the onboarding experience so that it doesn't introduce too much cognitive load. You have to think a lot about like 
what their value proposition that they're looking for as an IC rather than the CXO is and the differences between that. And if you can really nail that, I would posit that I think you're going to have a lot more success with bottoms up go to market in large companies than you would think. And I really just think that increasingly tops down sales is becoming a relic of the past for almost like every company. I would even say this about Snowflake. In fact, like you can actually onboard to Snowflake now as say like a business analyst or a BI architect in an almost self-serve fashion as I see it. And the company that I like to point to here, for example, is uh, GitHub. So GitHub is, is kind of an interesting business in that you would think it's been bottoms up from the beginning. And what I would say is that a, a data point that I heard is that their actual inbound demand, even to this day, really is only growing about 5% month over month. So it's not necessarily this thing that's growing non-linearly in terms of like the inbound funnel. However, the quality of the people that come in who have like real business problems to solve, they go through that journey really present an efficient opportunity for them to like move those people to the right in the pricing column, so to speak. And so most of the business that GitHub is doing today looks a lot like an open source company in some sense, where they're fielding inbound demand for people that have already signed up inside of really large companies and helping them arm themselves with a case and driving the process forward that helps them go from like, oh, I need GitHub for a project to how can I get my entire company to use GitHub? So I just think that's an untapped opportunity for most companies. And if I was building a startup today, I would try to design it to be native to this bottoms up motion, even if I'm going to big companies. So the third thing I'm going to say is, this is probably not going to apply to everyone, but I think it's an interesting point nonetheless, which is I think there's an opportunity for just about any software business today to consider open sourcing components of their product. And if not that, simply champion the use of open source. And again, if your goal is to really appeal to these technical end users who are almost inevitably stakeholders, if not the most important stakeholder in the implementation or the adoption or the ultimate business process or indicators of success that your software is intended to support, I really think this resonates with them. And so like, not only does it resonate with them philosophically, but I also think that if you can find a way to open source a component of your product in a way that actually creates some of that self-serve adoption, that's a really interesting opportunity too. And I just don't think enough people are scratching the surface of that as I see it. And so again, if I was starting a company today, and that was even like remotely near field for me, I would be considering it. The obvious example of like championing open source and the benefits that can come from that today are Google Cloud. I mean, obviously the way they support things like TensorFlow and Kubernetes has really accreted to their brand as I see it. And I think it's provided them with, frankly, an outsized advantage in some sense relative to Microsoft and Amazon. And they're obviously starting from way, way behind and may never catch up. But I do think their relevance and their success has been enriched by the fact that they've been such champions of these projects that have seen such widespread adoption. And then the last thing I'll say on this is think about community from day one. So I think we all know a community is really just this like-minded group of individuals that are, have this shared common interest and are, are interested in kind of sharing knowledge with one another. And so the question is like, your customers are almost inevitably that group, if you think about it. And I think it, not enough enterprise software businesses think that way. And so the question really is just like, what can you really do to bring your users together and enable them to get value from interacting with one another that you're not already doing? And I think this is like plays out fairly obviously with an open source company or even just a very developer focused company. But I'll give you an example of one that is neither, but I think it's done a good job of this, which is Salesforce. So Salesforce has this notion of Salesforce admins. And what Salesforce admins can do is they become a sort of certified administrator of Salesforce projects. And what that allows them to do is kind of participate in this community and this constant exchange of knowledge with their fellow Salesforce admins across the world that I think has really tightened their defensibility and frankly just created this ecosystem of people who consider that a credential. And when that becomes part of your career, obviously, that becomes a really interesting way to introduce a bit more durability to the future of your business and product. And so I just don't think enough 
software companies, not necessarily open source, not necessarily developer focused companies, but just generic software companies are exploring this. And so I would encourage you to do so again, if you're just getting started. So this point again is probably equally obvious, which is collaboration is simply king. And you have to embrace it where possible. And I think customers have simply been um, conditioned to expect that when they have a tool that's being put in front of them to get their work done, that if that work involves other stakeholders, they have to have an ability to work very fluidly with that group of people, or they're going to look for something else. And in the past, I think what's happened is you've seen a lot of tools like Slack and Trello and things of that nature that revolve around communication and project management sort of fill these gaps in the legacy products. But what we see happening now, what we're really excited about is companies that are thinking about actually plugging those gaps in their product natively. And so what I'm seeing is that most category-leading software companies today, take Salesforce again, for example, they just weren't designed with collaboration in mind. And I think that's given rise to this like universe of, you know, frankly, a long tail of different collaboration tools that are purely designed to integrate with those systems and fill those gaps. I think this is like a, a, one of the most profound opportunities for any startup founders, I see it. And so why is this happening? Number one, I think the browser is more powerful than ever before. So you can do some really interesting and snappy things with it that I just haven't seen possible before. And obviously, Figma is a very shining example of this. But the other thing is like the reality is most business processes are cross-functional. And I'd also not be a VC if I didn't have to make a remote work statement here to say that remote work is obviously becoming increasingly the norm for companies. And just the weight that um, is placed upon products that they're using to get their work done in the collaboration sense simply becomes greater as a result. And so like, again, what to do about this? The first thing I'd say is like, if you're getting started, think about how to weave all of that collaboration into your product where possible. So I see a lot of people, for example, like having bi-directional integrations with Slack. Sometimes I think it might be premature to do that. And if you can find ways to introduce things like threaded commenting, at mentions, chat, and so on in your product, I think it's a really interesting way to drive incremental engagement. And again, engagement is very valuable because not only is engagement uh, breed stickiness in your product, but engagement also increases the likelihood that your end users are going to require other end users to come into the product. And again, if your business revolves around per seat per month, that's a really interesting way to drive incremental revenue. And the example that I like here is Figma. So Figma obviously was like a point in time opportunity that sees the opportunity to take advantage of this like incremental performance that we all take advantage of in things like Google Chrome and some of these other modern browsers. The other thing I'd say about Figma that is really interesting is that they started out as like, how can designers collaborate with one another? But where they are now is how can literally anyone who is involved in the feedback process around creation of digital products participate in that process? And as a result, they went from having a lot of designers as their end market to marketers, to project managers, and so on. And that's, again, a really powerful concept that I think is just underexplored by most companies today. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a company like Figma that realizes it. I think you can do this in infrastructure. I think you can do this in marketing. Anywhere where you have cross-functional interactions going on that you're not facilitating, the question I'd be asking is, how can I facilitate those in my product? The second thing I'll say, and this is actually quite related to this, is like, think about how to experiment with ways to appeal to end users that are adjacent to your core audience. And the reason I think this is interesting is that if you can start to build workflows that go from catering purely to like your initial target user to one that serves both your target user and your adjacent end user, the same effect happens, which is you have these really interesting expansion dynamics where your product becomes more sticky, your product becomes more widely used. And I hope over time that will also accrue to your business in the form of revenue of some kind. And so an example that I like to talk about here is actually Carta. So Carta obviously started out as this fairly simple tool for cap table management for entrepreneurs. 
But if you think about the adjacent end users to these entrepreneurs, like you have shareholders, for example, and obviously where they've gone from there is that they've said, hey, why can't we actually serve the needs of investors like Gil and I who have portfolios of startups and have all kinds of administrative and reporting responsibilities around that to both our investors and ourselves internally? Why can't that happen in Carta? And guess what? They're doing a seriously good job at that. And furthermore, they're actually now helping uh, the companies who they originally served from a cap table management perspective orchestrate liquidity events, which actually serves the entire universe of shareholders rather than just the preferred shareholders. And in this case, what that means is like helping employees take liquidity, which is a very complicated and administratively heavy process that they've now proceeded to bring a lot of efficiency to through software. So again, they went from basically targeting the initial user as like an entrepreneur or a CEO who cares about their cap table and understanding how it trends to going after their investors as well as their employees. And that's a really powerful concept that I think can be applied almost anywhere as you think about building your company. The third thing I'll say on this is like, I would really encourage all of you to think about your product through the lens of what would it take for me to drive daily active usage, if not weekly active usage. A lot of companies out there and a lot of products are simply not of the mold that an employee or an end user should be thinking about using it every day. And that's totally okay. I'm not saying that you have to get there. And I'm not saying that that's like the deciding factor between any form of success or failure. However, I think if you ask yourself that question, it takes you down a really interesting path of thinking about things that your users might be doing outside of your product that they could be doing inside of it more frequently. And I think I've belabored this point of like where engagement starts to accrue to the benefit of any software company. And I think this is just another way to think about that and reframe it. And I think, again, what I would say is like treat engagement as if it's as valuable as revenue. From my experience, like if you're building your startup and no one's focused on engagement, um, you're going to be missing opportunities. And the inverse of that is that the moment you have somebody who is really thinking about this problem and like really asking that question, I can almost promise you it will get better. I'm not sure it's going to be daily active. I'm not sure it's going to be weekly active, but I can promise you that it will get better. And the example that I like to think about here is Slack. The value of Slack is that employees are spending almost as much time as it as they would spend inside of like a social media application, right? And the, the power of that, again, is that it gives you this incredible amount of optionality in terms of the new features that you introduce, in terms of the new business opportunities that you pursue. And again, I think that's where you start to see like really, really compounding growth and kind of sustainable and durable competitive advantages form. And so the last point on this is a little more tactical, but I'm still seeing a lot of companies I admire except slow page load times and other goofy forms of latency. And I've always taken a step back and asked like, why would you let this happen? Why would you put this in front of your end users? And the thing that I've realized is there's a lot of companies who have such uh, key value propositions or important value propositions that it actually doesn't harm their ability to generate revenue. However, it discourages collaboration. And I think, again, if you submit to the fact that engagement and therefore collaboration is nearly as valuable as revenue in terms of that mental model, I think you'd start to take a step back and say, how can we optimize some of those crusty parts of our product experience and think about it almost as if like, hey, this is in spite of it not blocking revenue, like it's blocking our ability to create value as a company because it's preventing our end users from using the product in full and encouraging others and pulling others into using the product in full. So that's all I have on, on this point. But again, like just collaboration is truly king. And I'll, I'll say that over and over again. So the third thing I'll talk about here is I think that the products that we use as consumers from how we shop to how we communicate with one another to how we consume new experiences have really conditioned us to expect that the products we use at work are actually providing tangible and obvious value on top of the data we give them and the data that they store in them. 
And again, what, like, why is this happening? The state of the art model performance has obviously gone way up over the past 10 years. So the things that you can actually do with, you know, fairly like simple machine learning or model architectures are, are quite profound in terms of personalization and automation and so on. The other thing I'd say is the cost of compute and storage, obviously going down to astronomically low levels. And I think that's only going to continue allows us to collect a lot more data and do genuinely useful things with it as, as engineers. And so again, I really think you should all be thinking about what can I do even in subtle ways to harness the power of machine learning to just like make my product experience better. And I think this is again, um, something that's been belabored over and over and over again, but I can't tell you how many startups I still need where I have these very obvious ideas in my head, even as a non-technical, um, person that they could be doing that they're not. And so the question is like what to do about this, like in, in a very specific sense. And I'll give you a couple ideas, whether you agree or disagree. So the first is like consider features that just simply augment the end user productivity. These are things like autocomplete. These are things like recommendations. These are things like personalizing the experience based on like prior actions in the application. And the example that I like to highlight here is like Google Drive. Like the fact that Google Drive understands the files that I've looked at very recently and surfaces those to me is useful. It's not sexy. It's not that intricate, but it's useful. And I think that is like a basis for like, are, are you doing things like that? Or are there things like that that you should be doing? Is something that I would be considering. The second thing I'd say is ask yourself, where can you make accurate predictions for your end user with the data that they've given you? And more importantly, what data is missing that would enable you to make even better or more interesting predictions that you're not already making? And how can you obtain it so long as it's done ethically and legally? I'm not sure I have like a perfect example to cite here, but what I would say is that my experience has been that just like that question uh, of what can I do to drive better engagement and aspire to make my users not just monthly actives, but perhaps weekly or daily actives, you ask the same question and there's probably a question you could ask your user or a feature that you can build that will cultivate some new type of data that allows you to make their experience even better. And so again, just ask yourself that question and I hope it leads you down an interesting path. The third thing I'd say is like to really seize opportunities. If you're assuming you are actually going down this path, seize opportunities to embrace federated learning across your customer base. And again, this has to be legal and ethical, but I think there's a bunch of interesting examples of where this can happen and, and accrue to the uh, end user experience. And an example, the most obvious example is fraud. So like take Shopify, for example. The reason Shopify or Stripe for that matter is highly effective at predicting fraud is simply because they are federating the data, the transaction data that is, across their universe of thousands and thousands of different customers. And so if there are ways that you can actually make better predictions or do things to make your end users more productive or simply delight them in ways that actually require you to think about like drawing from the data sets that you have across your end user base and you're not already doing that, I would do it. The last thing I'd say on this, and this is actually probably one of my, my favorite things, but I think it's actually a place where it works quite rarely, is consider pricing and packaging models that account for the value being delivered by the predictions and automation that you're delivering. And an example that I like to cite here is a company called Invenia. So Invenia is a company that's based in the UK. They came out of a lab from a pretty famous deep learning researcher named Zubin Garamani. And what Invenia is working on is actually optimizing the way utility grid operators are moving electricity throughout their infrastructure into people's homes and businesses and so on in a way that essentially if, brings new efficiency and savings to the way these utility grid operators operate. And the mo more interesting thing about that is actually how they make money. So the way they make money is they actually go to a customer, one of these utility grid operators, and they say, look, 
you know, we think we can save you 30 or 40% based on what we see here. And what we'd like to do is we'd like to participate in some of that savings with you rather than charging you a subscription fee. So they're completely aligned with the customer. And I think that that kind of alignment is just so powerful that if there's grounds for doing it in the context of your business, I would experiment with it, if not at least test the idea with customers or run the potential economic implications of it for you. Another example here of where I think it's actually a really interesting thing to consider is like companies that are helping um, enterprises optimize the way they spend on cloud infrastructure. So anywhere where you have some kind of complex system that has all kinds of different variables and inputs, I think there's opportunity to explore this, if not as a complement to your existing business model. You've got to be exploring ways to bring automation and personalization to the end user experience. And the best way to do that is, of course, with some of these neat ML techniques that are emerging and becoming much easier to, to incorporate into your products. Okay, so the last one I've got here is the cloud is no longer new to most businesses. And I think we, we probably all accept this premise, but I think what's more interesting and probably under-discussed is just how early we are in the overall market penetration in terms of like the total amount of the trillions in IT spend that is being spent atop these cloud infrastructure platforms. In fact, I understand it to be about 20% today. So we are not even close to 50% penetration. In fact, I remember being at Cisco um, when I was a member of the corporate development team before I got into the venture business. And this was like around 2011, 2012. And we were talking about how virtual machine, virtualization penetration was around 60 to 70%. So it's just amazing to think that how early we are in the cloud journey, given just like how inundated we are with the way these businesses operate and just how native every business is being designed to the cloud. And so as more of our world moves online and into software, cloud is obviously this key enabler of the speed that businesses must move at to seize these opportunities. And so the question here is like, what can you actually do that you're not already doing to sort of cater to this reality if you haven't necessarily internalized it yet? And what I would say is like the least obvious thing is you should be building with the cloud native customer in mind. I think it's tempting when you aspire to target big companies to think about their legacy infrastructure, think about a story for on-prem from the beginning. I could not be less uh, enthusiastic about that idea. And the reason is that if you think about like going to where the puck is heading, you want to be where their new center of gravity is. And I can almost assure you that most of the Fortune 2000 in their head is thinking about their new center of gravity as the cloud and how they architect their future platforms around that notion. And an example here that I like to cite is Datadog. So Datadog is obviously this incredible business, a leading company in infrastructure and application performance monitoring today, as I see it. But the thing that they did was that was interesting was they made a really intentional bet on AWS and building the best-in-class experience for monitoring compute instances on AWS. At the time, this was a very non-obvious, I would almost say contrarian decision to make. But what it allowed them to do was build their business in a way that they were able to grow fairly quickly just by capturing some of the initial market penetration that AWS was getting at the time. But more importantly, as the rate at which businesses started moving more and more of their infrastructure to the cloud got steeper, they just had this unfair advantage that companies like New Relic and AppD, I think, were really ill-equipped to compete with. And I think the rest is history, right? We can just look at their market cap to say whether that's a good idea or not. The second thing I'd say is I would encourage you to consider deployment models that enable your customers to run their product on their cloud of choice. And we've probably heard this before in various shapes and forms, but like an example would be like, if I'm Target or I'm Home Depot, I'm not a huge fan of throwing everything at AWS. And the reason is because I believe there's a future in which they're even more competitive with my business than they are now. And so what you see is that customers kind of have this religion about not wanting to necessarily support Amazon for that reason as one flavor of how this can manifest. 
And so what they want to do is actually be able to pick best-in-class solutions, but have the ability to run those on their cloud of choice. And the reason this is challenging for a lot of startups is because most companies, I think very rationally so, architect the initial version of their product as a single multi-tenant system that is running typically on AWS. And when you've architected your SaaS as this kind of distributed thing, that's very tightly coupled to the native services and infrastructure provided by the cloud provider. It can be very messy to actually think about how to like disintermediate your product from the cloud provider in that sense. And as a result, when a customer like this comes around and asks if they can run you on Azure, asks that they can run you on Google, you don't want to be surprised by that. You want to be ready to actually have an opportunity to respond to that. And the, the company that I like to cite here is actually Databricks. So one of the things that I think really propelled Databricks to where it is today was they saw this opportunity. And sure, they started out on AWS, but what they did very opportunistically and intentionally, again, was they forged a partnership with Microsoft that made it really easy for customers to consume on Microsoft and then ultimately Google as well. So I really admire the way Databricks handled this. I think Snowflake is another example. So if you can think about ways to architect your SaaS in a manner that makes it feasible uh, from an operational perspective and not too much of a distraction to serve those types of opportunities early on, I do think it's an increasingly attractive opportunity to pursue. The third thing I'd say, and this is kind of related to this, is like, I don't think it's ever too early to engage the cloud platforms for marketplace presence and potential co-marketing opportunities. So from my experience, like, even if your business is not one that necessarily belongs in the cloud provider marketplace like a Databricks or a Snowflake does, the co-marketing opportunities that I've seen these cloud platforms be interested in, even if you're simply doing something as mundane as like using DynamoDB, the idea of getting your startup to be a case study in how DynamoDB has made you successful and just the reach that that gives you is really hard to overstate. And I just don't think enough startups are engaging with the people that run these ecosystems and are excited about these types of opportunities on the cloud provider side. And I think you're leaving a lot of, frankly, marketing and brand awareness building opportunity on the table. The example here, again, that I'll point to is like Snowflake. Like I think Snowflake has played this masterfully. And what they've realized is that so long as the cloud provider is making more money when a customer is using their product, they're very, very friendly. Another example is HashiCorp. I think Terraform did a great job at this too, for those of you that are familiar with that. And then the last thing I'd say on this is build out a strong integration story around cloud provider native services. So I think a lot of folks kind of in the same vein as like the co-marketing opportunities that I would encourage you to pursue are leaving this out and leaving this opportunity on the table. And so an example here would be Okta, right? Okta obviously sits in this really interesting place where they sit between any application and cloud provider you're using and your end users. But I think what's allowed them to actually convince customers to give them the right to do that is that they were very intentional about saying, hey, here's how you authenticate into X. Here's how you authenticate into Y. And I think if you do that in a way that makes the cloud provider feel like you're building up your business in a manner that actually serves uh, their interests, which is further consumption of their products, I think it's, again, just like an underrated place to be as a startup. And I think it's just never too early to start thinking about that. And I think if you don't, one of your competitors will, and that will accrue to their benefit in ways that you'll miss out. So... Those are the four things I wanted to talk about. So just to kind of like rehash, technical end users are simply more powerful than ever before. You've got to think about how to cater to that group, even if you're not necessarily targeting them directly. The second thing was really just this notion of how collaboration is just woven in, needs to be woven into the fabric of any product. And anything that you're not doing to facilitate collaboration around your business process is a missed opportunity. The third thing is to think about how you can augment your end users' productivity and personalize their experience with machine learning. 
And then lastly, like I said, just a reminder, we are so early in this journey to cloud such that if you are not thinking about like targeting that cloud native customer, that Uber, that Stripe early on, I think you're missing the boat because frankly, the Fortune 2000 who you probably accept are going to drive most of the revenue for your business are very much becoming fast followers to that group of people. And so I think it's important that you take that to heart and think about serving that bleeding edge population almost counterintuitively so because it presents you with a better opportunity to capture the wave of the big companies as they start to follow those habits. So that's all I add in terms of presentation. So before we jump into maybe some more subject matter stuff, you've invested in Israeli founders in StackFit, in German founders in Prisma, in Danish founders. I'd love your quick take on three questions. One is what makes Europe so awesome? Second one is why do a lot of American investors still not get that? And the third one is what are some of the unique challenges that face these European or Israeli teams in these infrastructure businesses when they go into the U.S. market and try to penetrate that? You're pretty uniquely positioned to comment on that. So I'd love your take. Yeah. So what I'd say about Europe is I would actually push back on the notion that my fellow peers in sort of this like Silicon Valley venture ecosystem remain ignorant to the explosive potential and just like promising nature of investing in European startups. Like it's becoming obvious. And the reason it's becoming obvious is that you're starting to see the same pattern that emerged very early on in Silicon Valley that continues to propel its success to this day, which is that you're seeing very successful and well-run technology businesses achieve large scale, employ thousands of people, and teach those people all the tools of the trade, how to be great managers, how to recruit, how to run their business or how to run their function, how to actually like understand product market fit, how to get like really unique visibility into their end user environments and like what it takes to actually solve those problems. And so what I'm seeing more and more in Europe is exactly what I look for here, which is people are coming to me saying, hey, I worked at this company. We solved this problem for this end user population. But what I realized is there's this whole other problem that remains unsolved and there's a huge supply demand imbalance that exists as a result. And we want to go address that supply demand imbalance. So you have kind of unique insight that's informed by experience. You have people who have actually been able to operate inside of really high quality businesses before, which I think is really important in terms of teaching them kind of how to get out of their own way and, and see around corners in ways that we think startup founders need to. And again, I think what that means is that like the world is just flatter than ever before. Like we're seeing this kind of convergence where like the entrepreneurs that I hear from in a place like Belgium or France or what have you, they sound, they look and feel perhaps other than their accent when they're speaking to me in English, because I only speak that language. They sound, look, and feel a lot like the people that I meet here in San Francisco. That's exciting. So that's the first thing I'd say is like, I think it's, there's just this convergence or this feeling of convergence that I see. And again, like our job is to invest in the best companies and wherever those companies are, we don't have a lot of dogma about it. Obviously there are some considerations to think about as someone who's based in California, investing in companies in Europe. And the consideration that I would think about is really just like, how can we give them an equivalent unfair advantage? that we would expect to deliver to a company here in San Francisco. And so that's access to customers, that's access to talent, that's helping them think about kind of the strategy of their business and so on, which is informed by our longitudinal experience working with other successful companies. And what I'm finding is that more and more, if you put the legwork in as an investor, you can actually start to build a network and a point of view that helps you deliver that unfair advantage, even to founders in Europe. And the other thing I'd say is that most of these companies now that are serving kind of these value chains that I spend a lot of time thinking about, the data and software delivery value chain, they're all targeting the same customers. And so our ability to provide unique access to those customers 
and understand, um, you know, what it takes to actually be successful in those environments. Like it actually transfers very well over to Europe in ways that it might not have 10 or 15 years ago. So I'm as excited as ever about it. Although yeah. I, I admit sometimes the early morning calls can wear on me, but it's, it's worth it. Right. When we think about our investment thesis, one of, one of the ways I explain to people, the companies we invest in we're, we're, are great companies and they would be perceived to be great companies by everyone were it not for the accents. And we can just see through that a little earlier than most. And I, I think you're right. I think the competitive advantage of being willing to invest outside the U.S. is just rapidly evaporating as more and more tier one U.S. investors recognize the potential outside the U.S. Let's dive into one of those examples. I'd love to hear the inside story on, on the Netlify investment from a thesis point of view and an evolution point of view. There's a few companies that are sort of iconic that as a VC, I get tremendous sort of envy about, but also fear because I feel like if I had seen Netlify that early, I probably wouldn't have gotten it. I, I take some comfort in that, but even if I had seen it, I probably wouldn't have done it. But when you first saw it, what did you see there? What was your thesis? How did you arrive at it? I think a lot of the things that are obvious now could not have possibly been so obvious back then. I'd love to have you deconstruct that decision a little bit. Yeah, happy to. So uh, in terms of the thesis, the thing I'd say first is it's our job as investors, and you know the skill, to look for pockets of abrupt change. So what we're doing on a day-in, day-out basis, when we talk to entrepreneurs, when we talk to end users, when we talk to other thought leaders in the ecosystem is we're looking for that change. And when we see it, our job is to be really effective at dissecting it, understanding why, and thinking about like what opportunities it presents to new companies and whether or not those companies already exist. And so in this context with Netlify, what I saw that I think is now obvious is that developers were just thinking about building web applications in this totally different manner. And this totally different manner meant that people were, there was this very obvious supply demand imbalance with the tools that they use to build things, the tools that they use to operate their web applications in the past relative to how they wanted to do it now. And so again, for those of you that aren't familiar with Netlify and their business, really what they are is a deployment and hosting platform that provides a series of workflows for developers that are building their sites in a statically compiled fashion. So you hear this term Jamstack a lot. Really what it means as I think about it is like if you're requesting a page on a website, in the past, what would happen is you'd hit some origin server and that would load the entirety of the page and then it would furnish that experience in your browser. With Netlify, with this new pattern, what people are doing is actually thinking about building every single one of those pages down to like a simple static asset and then putting each of those static assets on a CDN. And what that allows you to do is actually think about your front ends almost like you do your microservices which is that you can both update these pages like very quickly and rebuild the site very fast. But more importantly, the end user experience is fundamentally better because the page loads so fast because instead of having to go and hit an origin server, say US East 2, you're hitting some CDN that's local to where you are in say LA and the page is loading instantly because it's just a simple static asset. And so again, if you think about like the deployment and hosting requirements of this new architecture, like it's very different. And that's exactly the opportunity that Netlify saw and that I was really excited about. Because again, I think it goes without saying that uh, if you can become one of the predominant parts of the tool chain for a web developer, there are a lot of web developers out there. So when you see this kind of a replatforming happen, you get really excited if you're someone like you or I. The other thing I'd say that really spiked about this company when we met them, and to be fair, we did not invest in the seed or the Series A. I think both Gil and I wish we did. We did invest in the Series B, however, when this company was really early in terms of its commercialization, but where they were actually really mature and really spiking was in on the basis of the end user love for the product, number one. But number two, I think uh, kind of a trailing indicator of that was just this incredible inbound rate of signups. 
And so when you see a company like this, that is seeing thousands of users come in every week, in some cases every day at this point, um, you get really excited. And the reason you get really excited is because life is just easier as a company, as you think about building your business, when you figured out a way to actually have people come to you, right? And so GitHub benefited from this. I think Figma benefits from this, Slack benefits from this. So when you see it as an investor, you treat that very sacredly and you value it. And so in Netlify's case, like it's just some of the strongest inbound lead flow that we'd ever seen. And it's no surprise, frankly, like, again, there's this supply and demand imbalance in the web development tool chain that they were kind of the first to actually jump in and serve. And so we got excited about the future of this company, number one, because we thought that this trend was only just starting to play out. So we thought there was a lot of gas left in the tank that was going to kind of continue to drive very capital efficient growth as a business. Number two, we felt like the brand that they were starting to build in this ecosystem, again, web developers are a very cottagey community, as some of you may know was so strong that we felt like that was actually going to serve as a durable competitive advantage in a world where this would likely invite competition from the usual suspects, the AWSs, the Googles, the Microsofts of the world, which has certainly played out, which I think is also incredible validation of this movement, this ecosystem that they're on the forefront of. But the other thing I'd say that we got really excited about in this case is that the way that they were operating their business was so different than how infrastructure companies operate. And what I mean by that is that they positioned themselves as more of a kind of workflow and collaboration suite, but the way that they collect rent, so to speak, is on the basis of the hosting. And so what's interesting about that is that the perception that that shapes for the end user is very different than like, I don't feel like I'm buying a compute instance, or I don't feel like I'm buying a server. What I'm buying is this workflow. And I think what that does is it presents a lot of really interesting flexibility in terms of how you shape your business model, how you price, how you package. Hang on, you're buying a workflow, but you're actually paying for hosting, right? So you're getting a workflow for free, kind of, right? Well, the way I think about that is, and we've experimented with some very different pricing and packaging models here, which I think this, the scaffolding of this business has afforded us. But the way we started out was we said, look, like you're going to pay us basically on a per user per month basis. And then what we started to experiment with was whether things like bandwidth and uh, site traffic was a better monetization model. But I think where we've landed is that really like this is a collaboration and workflow suite. And the reason that's interesting, and I think kind of clarifies your question, is when we position ourselves against hosting infrastructure companies, and we're a collaboration company who essentially gives the hosting away, that's a very interesting proposition, in my opinion, because we can play a game that the others can't, right? Like they're incentivized to think about how they can drive you down a path of consuming infrastructure. We're incentivized to drive you down a path of how you can collaborate and bring more of your colleagues into the project and think about your website operations and deployment workflows in a more collaborative fashion. And coming back to collaboration, I think this is a very powerful concept because it's my belief that end users tend to think about the value that they're getting from products more in that context than they do the actual infrastructure consumption. And so what I like about Netlify is that they had this kind of flexibility and we've been able to experiment. And I think we've kind of now found the right answer, which is coming back to that workflow and collaboration notion in terms of how we think about our unit of value as a company. Right. There's a concept buried in there that one of the companies that in our portfolio we've talked about, you'll probably know which one I'm talking about, is, is exploring as well, which is that the, the previous model for infrastructure was let's kind of charge you for infrastructure. Infrastructure is complicated and expensive, and we'll drive you to use as much of it as we possibly can and charge you for that. And I think the new model is let's actually sell you the infrastructure on a cost basis because we all recognize it has a cost, but we'll actually charge you for something that you actually love and want to pay for because you feel like you're getting value from it. And the infrastructure will kind of just, it's a pass through. I agree. And I think you're seeing a lot more companies start to embrace this model. 
And again, I think whenever you can play a different game than what the incumbent set is playing, that's a very interesting place to be as a startup. It confuses your incumbents and it also can almost present a very unique position or posture to your end user population that you're targeting in a way that others can't because they have this kind of business model dilemma about like, do we move on from that? Do we start to play that game? And whenever you can get people thinking about playing the game that you're playing very natively, that's a great place to be a startup. Right. You said early on that you focus on technical products for technical buyers. Given that framing, I would love your take on the whole no-code movement because we see no-code more and more places. I'm looking at companies right now that are sort of no-code for infrastructure, no-code for code. And we seem to be rapidly entering an era where a lot of stuff that was super difficult is actually quite easy and heavily democratized. And yet guys like you and me still run around and look at a lot of companies that are selling deeply technical stuff for deeply technical people when maybe those are just not going to be the differentiators that they used to be. And it's going to be the experience of using it and the workflow around using it, all kinds of other things that are much more about UX and UI and ease of use as opposed to depth of sophistication, which is going to be commoditized. Do you sense that? Does that keep you up at night at all? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is like, I think for any, any business that you're building, going really deep on the psychology of your end users is critical to surfacing those like nuggets of unique insight that are going to help you uh, drive success in your business. And in this context, the thing I'd say is like, we're all human beings and human beings, they, they work to live. And what, what, the way that shows up in this world is I think people just want tools that help them get their work done more efficiently without compromising on quality, feeling like they're maximizing productivity so that they can go home and live their lives, right? And, and like anytime you can deliver that kind of efficiency, you are creating value for that end user and that end user is going to be loyal to you. And so in this no-code context, like the, really the way I think about it is like, if you're saving your end user time and you're not compromising on the quality of the outcome, that will hunt, that thesis will hunt. You take Webflow, you take any of these companies that I think are really like embracing this paradigm. At the end of the day, they're giving people powers to do things that they couldn't do before. But in Webflow's context, I think the way I think about it is that a marketer or a designer would previously have to rely on engineering to, to get their project over the finish line. And with this low-code abstraction, they essentially don't. That concept plays in almost any business process, any function. And so I talked about automation and I talked about, you know, where you can juice or squeeze more productivity out of what you're doing for your end users. The way I think about no code is it's just like a logical continuation of that. And I think, frankly, it's, not only is it here to stay, but it also begs the question as to like, where will we build software and where will we be sort of embracing these sort of drag and drop paradigms? And I fundamentally believe that anything that is truly customer facing, that has any kind of like user interface complexity will, for the foreseeable future at least, be within the purview of engineering. And I think that's kind of not hard to explain why, but I think ultimately like those are the crown jewels and you're going to want to customize that. And you're going to want to have full control over that. You're going to want to seize opportunities as they present themselves. And I think when that comes up and you're beholden to the limitations that some of these no-code abstractions present, you end up in this tricky place where like you can't actually do what you know is best for your business, best for your customers. And that's why I think engineering and the flexibility of code itself is attractive and will continue to be. However, when you think about internal tools, for example, I don't think um, people really care that much about the user experience of how some kind of internal admin interface functions. And therefore, you see companies like Retool having a lot of success by saying, look, here's the bare bones. We'll help you wire this together. You're not going to have to spend as much time on the glue code that you would. You're not going to be as beholden to engineering when you think about how to build this like internal admin interface, for example, that's where I think no code is going to be really powerful. But then coming back to things like Webflow and Figma, where I think it's also going to be very powerful is that you think about these kind of low complexity marketing pages 
things that are kind of on the fringes of like the surface area of your customer facing web assets, time to market really matters there. And the, the speed of iteration really matters there. And if you can enable non-technical end users to iterate and move faster and get their work done again, so they can go home and live their lives, that's a very underratedly powerful concept. Cool. So awesome. First question is from uh, David Ben David in Tel Aviv. He's the CEO of TensorLeap. They are still in semi-stealth mode, so I'll let him introduce as much as he wants to. Okay, Bucky. Hey, David. So yeah, I'm from TensorLeap. We built a very sophisticated, advanced platform for the development, analysis, and optimization of uh, neural networks, deep learning. And I was wondering what your view on the state of the to the market for data scientists is, and what, in your opinion, would be the best way to get developers' attention and get them to try yet another AI dev tool, given the amount of knowledge out there? So this is, this is probably the toughest question you could have asked me. And the reason I think it's the toughest question is I'm actually still in the midst of like fully refining my point of view on this, but I'll add a couple pieces of color when I think build up to what I'm thinking. So what I'm seeing is a lot of companies are picking something like trading or surveying or one of the parts of this chain and saying, hey, like, we're going to own that. We're going to make it really easy for you to deploy and start serving predictions from a model, for example, right? The challenge is I'm not seeing a lot of like really unique IP around a lot of these products. Like I think they're solving relatively tactical and operational challenges, which I think is completely okay. But the question is like, how do you actually differentiate yourself from the competition? In sort of adjacent spaces, what we've seen is that people have used open source and and the obvious benefits of having adoption of some underlying open source tool, like say a framework or um, you know something that like you're wrapping a model in, like Flask, as a way to actually like drive people down into your funnel and make it very obvious as to how your products that are tightly integrated with said open source are the right thing for them to consume. But the challenge is, I think this, that the workflow here and like how people are doing things has been changing so so quickly over the past like couple of years that I don't think anyone's really had a chance yet or to successfully grab that mantle. And so what I see are a lot of point solutions that don't look all that different from one another. And as a result, when I see that, it's hard for me to have a strong point of view as to like how to pick an early winner. And so what we've done is we've actually been a little more hesitant to pick one of these companies so early on because of, of this dynamic. However, the thing that I think is interesting when you have this kind of fragmentation and you have what, at least in my opinion, looks like a lot of undifferentiated solutions doing very similar things. I think the question then is like, do you go end to end? And what I'm seeing is that there are a few companies that I think are really interesting that have said, hey, we're actually going to go end to end and give you the whole suite. And we think that is actually the most differentiated way to go about this. Because if we can do that, the technical undertaking necessary is non-trivial. And if we can succeed at that, that's going to be a challenging dynamic for our competitors in any one of the point solutions or silos to compete with. So David, the answer to your question is probably not super satisfying, but what I would say is like, I'm still kind of in the midst of saying like, who really has an edge here as a point solution in this tool chain? And I'm just not seeing very obvious candidates for that yet. And so my guess would be that each of these components is going to rally around some kind of open source solution. And the purveyor of that open source solution is going to have a fundamental advantage to drive consumption of their you know, tooling or hosted versions of that product in a way that say like Databricks did with Spark. But I just haven't seen like really breakaway successes in that respect from an open source perspective. So my mental model is kind of broken here as well, I'll admit. And so as a result, we've been fairly hesitant. But Gil did mention that we invested in a company called Labelbox, 
which I think was really interesting because if you think about like where they sit in this value chain, they're all the way at the left. And what I like about being kind of in the beginning of one of these processes is like you, again, if you can kind of establish leadership there, you do have an opportunity to sort of intercept people that are doing this work early on in their journey. And with that, you can kind of grow with them. And I think that's what Labelbox has done a really good job of. But again, like that's a very competitive space as well. And the question is to like how you forge a durable competitive advantage other than sales and marketing execution at scale, I think remains to be seen. Okay. Thank you. Well, thanks. Uh, so next question is from John Edville, CEO of Garden. Um, hey, John. And I always used to joke with LP that say we invest from you know, Finland to Portugal and Israel to Iceland. And the Icelandic entrepreneur is always like theoretical. But John is an actual Icelandic entrepreneur, although he's based in Berlin. Hey guys. Hey, Gil. Like, lucky. Nice to see you. Recently, we uh, announced our first proper commercial product. So now we're more, we're focusing. We've been uh, working on the open source product for a while. And obviously that's geared towards developers now, which is our end user. But what we're grappling with now is how we basically find our way to the developer, to the actual person with the purchasing power, which tends not to be the developer, especially for larger deal sizes. What have you found to be successful tools to help our end user, the developer, make the case internally at their company to basically uh, help them pitch us? Yeah, so uh, there's some folks that I really admire and respect over at HashiCorp that I think have proposed the most compelling framework to me about how to think about this. So I'll just share that framework which is they have this notion of an information architecture. And what an information architecture refers to is how the end user or the buyer is actually communicating the value and the perception of value of a product to one another. And if you understand that at a very nuanced level, you can actually start to arm either one of those parties, depending on whether you're going tops down or bottoms up like you are, with the right facts and the right narrative to make that case in as coherent a manner as possible. And so my understanding of, of your business would be that like that, the answer would be that the end user is basically making the case to a budget holder that not only are they reaping serious productivity gains from your product, but they're also actually able to probably prevent bad code from being deployed or obvious misconfigurations of the cluster and so on, given you're operating in the Kubernetes value chain. And so my advice to you would be, think about like putting yourself in the shoes of the end user and be honest about like, hey, what are we really giving you? Like, what is guarded to you? And from there, I think what you can then do is start to think about like, how does that value, what the end user articulates to you as the value that they're getting from your product, how does that translate to value in the context of their business? And in the context of their business, I think that's what you ultimately use to start to shape the narrative of how you go up and, and speak to the budget holder, maybe the engineering manager or someone even higher up. And again, that's kind of that like information uh, architecture, information hierarchy concept that I think you just have to be best in class at understanding to have success with this model or it's going to be hard. That makes sense. Thank you. And I would encourage you to study HashiCorp and anyone you know over there who, who's been doing this because they have the exact same challenge. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm Armand and Magellan. They're fantastic guys. Good. I know we're bumping up against time. How about one more? Okay. Okay, cool. So let's bring on Gero Kyle from Corable in Berlin. Hi there. Hey, Bucky. So you talked a lot about kind of the value of engagement with tools like Figma and Slack. And we're building a platform that allows non-technical users to automate processes that previously couldn't have been automated because they require a kind of 
judgment on unstructured data by humans. So we're building a no-code platform, if you will, and that helps people and companies automate that. So my question would be, from an engagement point of view, we are somewhat similar to Zapier. So you set it up once, and ideally, if it works, you don't have to put in that much work afterwards anymore. How do you see engagement in that kind of context? Yeah. So this is why I was very clear that like, there's got to be edge cases and like, it's okay to be an edge case. And I think you very aptly honed in on the fact that your business sounds like it is one. So what I would say here is that if you think about the life cycle of like your user journey, it sounds like if I may just kind of look at your website here in real time, it's that I identify a task that I want to automate. I proceed to use your product to automate that task. And then I start to reap the value of every time that task is carried out by someone other than a human that human gets to go and spend their time elsewhere. And so I think in this case, what I would say is, are there things you can do on an ongoing basis to either uh, continue to surface the magnitude of that value that you're delivering? So like one sort of cheeky way to think about it might be like you could send an email to your end user saying like, hey, we automated that task like 50 times this week and that saved your user, you know, 100 hours of their time. Another thing you could think of, and again, that's just kind of like a dopamine hit that you can give folks. And what that might actually do, in my opinion, is provoke them to want to jump back into your application and think about other things they got me. Another thing you can do is um, if you have the right amount of like telemetry and visibility into like things that your product could be doing for the end user that it's not, and there's engineering work required to actually like make that really obvious to them and almost in a systematic way in your product, I think there's ways that you can actually sort of entice them to consume the product even more. So the way I think about it in your case is like, what are the nuggets that I can feed back to the end user in terms of like, again, like the performance that you're delivering, the productivity gains that you're delivering, that are going to reinforce like why they chose you in the first place and lead to more consumption. To me, that would be like my North Star, which is like, how many processes am I automating? And are those processes like more and more core to the operations mm-hmm. of these businesses? So I would just be thinking about kind of land grabbing inside of each of your customers. And so once they start with one process, like what can you do? to sort of surface to them what that next process is. And inside of big companies, you might want to study companies like Salonis, for example, that are doing this notion of process mining inside of really large companies that are still working with very legacy systems. But my point is like, if you see that like your product is integrated to something and you have an intuition that like the fact that you're integrated to that product means there might be, they might be doing something that you may not be doing or something you see other end users doing with that product. You could also surface that to them. Yeah, that, that's a great point. If I may, like one more question, since we're a horizontal platform and we're covering like a ton of different use cases, basically anything a user could imagine, how do you think about kind of the value of predictions? You also kind of talked about that briefly in your talk before. Prediction of, I don't know, like a document classification prediction might have a very different value than the analysis of a microscopy picture for kind of some disease and blood or whatever. So how do you think about these different values from the predictions and how would you think about kind of a pricing model on the user side? I would think about it through the lens of just like the time that you're saving and how valuable that time is. So like in a clinical context, like the microscopy example that you cited, the clinician's time is, is like very tangible and obvious in terms of how valuable it is. Whereas if you think about just like automating some mundane business process that could otherwise be outsourced to, you know, some offshore BPO, the pricing model there is going to be a lot different. So again, it's this kind of like notion of the build versus buy, like what are they doing before versus what they can be doing with you. And my advice would be to try to capture some subset versus like the entirety of that cost savings, again, to drive customer alignment. So I wouldn't try to get too greeny 
with automating a mundane process in your context. Because I think at that point, you'll either get undercut by competition or they'll start to wonder like, hey, is there like a cheaper way for us to do this? And so I think in your case, it sounds like the things you're automating are fairly transactional, but high volume. And so I would let that be reflected in your pricing model by essentially proving to them that like the cost of orchestrating one step in that process beforehand was X and that your pricing model Y is going to be a significant cost reduction opportunity for them. Yeah, those are good inputs. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much, Bucky, uh, for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for having me. All great questions. And anyone, feel free to reach out to me. if Gil has my contact information or you can find me probably somewhere on the intraweb. But I look forward to meeting as many of you as possible at some point. One more. Thanks. Bye, everybody.